the 1980s. I was laid off after working for five years. Uh, I tried to get public assistance and was denied because although I was a single parent, my son was living with his mother in another state. I'm 74 years old, living on Social Security and SSI, which comes to about $10,000 a year. Um, I live in uh, subsidized housing, HUD, which helps me a lot, but I still don't have enough. Nearly 6 million American seniors are living at or below the poverty line. During the pandemic, Americans over 55 lost their jobs at a higher rate than younger Americans, the first time that's happened in over 50 years. A million new seniors fell into poverty between 2020 and 2021. The Social Security Administration recently announced that benefits for the 2023 calendar year will increase by 8.7 percent. That's to adjust for the surging cost of inflation. Medicaid premiums are set to decrease by a similar amount as well. So what does that mean for seniors? This episode is part of our series, The Price of Poverty, where we explore poverty in America. Today, we're looking at the financial hardships facing Americans over 65. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We'll be back with our conversation in a moment. We're starting our discussion with Sandy Kirk. Sandy's from Marion, Virginia. She lives on Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. That's in part because of a disability she developed while working a manual labor job at a molding company. I spoke to Sandy before the show and started by asking her about that disability. I worked there for 20 years, and finally the concrete got me on my knees. I finally, on that hard surface, I had to have two knee replacements. How has that impacted your financial health? Uh-huh. I'm poor. Hmm. I mean, I had to, since I was younger, I was not eligible for Medicare at that time. And I had to go on disability, which you have to wait a certain amount of time. And then I had to use my 401k for insurance. And it just, well, right now, all I have is my Social Security that I get. Is that Social Security enough to cover your expenses every month? No. So how? Definitely not. How are you making up the gap, Sandy? I get help with my uh, copay on the Medicare because my Social Security isn't that much. If it wasn't for programs that do help people, I would be out in the cold, honey. Hmm. Are these programs in your community, or are these state-run programs? State-run and community. What kind of assistance are you getting from those programs? Is it food assistance? Is it housing or other things? I have to pay for my home. I've not got it paid off yet. I do get not much food stamps. $20 a month. Hmm. I mean, that's not, you know, and just different things you pick up and you just try to make it. I mean, you get one check a month. And if that check doesn't stretch all the way, then you just don't have it. You said you worked for the the company for 20 years. Yes, ma'am. When you imagined what retirement would look like for you, what did you think it would be like? 
not trying to get around on two bad knees in the back. I mean, you know, I thought I would be able to... They told me I could go back to work after I got my knees done, but this has been like 20 years ago. And I think they've made a lot of improvement on the knees now. But I wanted to get down in the floor and play with my grandkids. I wanted to travel, uh, you know, just be out there, not here. And there's just no way. The the raise that we got for Social Security, it's there, yes. It's the biggest we've ever got, but everything else is going up, too. So you're talking about that 8.7% increase in benefits. Right, and if you get an increase in Social Security, everything else goes up, too. So the price of groceries, the price to heat or cool your home, all of that goes up as the the benefits increase, too. Right, and if it didn't go up, yes, you might could keep your head above water. But right now, it's just barely. I think when people imagine what it's like to age in America, there's this assumption that there will be family there to help take care of you or maybe close family friends. What has your experience been like? I have a son. Um, Most of my family is either lives far, far away or... Um, they have passed already. I do have a son, but no, I would not ask my son. It may be a Southern thing, whatever. I would not ask my son. He did not ask to be born, and he owes me nothing. Sandy, I I wonder what you would say to lawmakers about what you need right now and, and what other people in your position might need. I think that they need to take care of their own before they start taking care of others. My father was in Korea, and he didn't. He got shot twice. He did go back, and he he died from something that happened there. And he he fought for our freedom. He fought so people could live like they are today. And I think instead of putting the vets out on the street or whatever, I think somebody should go up and shake their hands. You mentioned ongoing issues with your knees and your back. How important are Medicaid benefits for your ongoing care? Well, I cannot afford a supplement policy. So really, the Medicare pays 80% and the Medicaid does pay my premium. Struggling to pay what I owe, what it doesn't pay. Sandy, can you help us understand what it's just what it's like for you on a day-to-day basis? I I know, as you said, this was not this was not the retirement you, you wanted or planned for yourself. You had other things you wanted to do. You wanted to travel, you know. What is it like for you to, to look into the future and not necessarily see a change on the horizon? 
Honey, I see no light at the end of the tunnel. I really don't. It's just, I think what I'm living now is probably what I will live until I die. What do you want people to understand about aging in America that you think people don't talk about enough or that they overlook? It seems to me that the older you get, the less understanding you get. I know there's a lot. My I took care of my mother, and it was literally a fight every day. It seems in America, it seems like when you get older, you are dispensable. That was my conversation with Sandy Kirk. We were connected to Sandy through the National Council on Aging. That's a nonprofit organization advocating for older adults' interests in Congress and supporting community organizations that provide direct services to seniors. Ramsey Alwyn is their president and CEO, and she joins us now. Ramsey, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. And joining me in studio is Richard Johnson. He's director of the Retirement Policy Program at the Urban Institute. Richard, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jen. I want to address right up front this tweet we got from IT Help Desk. It says, when people get old, they become dispensable. They're not helping to contribute nearly as much as if they were when they were young. So why would the United States invest the money to help them if they're not contributing? And, And Ramsey... I mean, there, there, there are some levels there. Um, there's some ageism. There's some ableism. But I, I just want you to talk about the social contract we have in this country and what we've told people about what they can expect when they age. That's right. Uh, we, for, for decades, we've made a commitment, an understanding that if you work hard, you play by the rules, you raise the next generation like Sandy did, that we'll be there for you. We'll be there for your health and your financial security. We made a commitment that when you give, that in the United States, you'll be able to age in America and you'll be able to age with dignity, purpose, and security with those cornerstone programs. But over the years, they've eroded in terms of the ability to truly meet one's needs as they age. Social Security was never intended to be the sole source of income, but with pensions going by the wayside and people working paycheck to paycheck unable to save, it's become the sole source for many. And yet it's not enough, as Sandy shared. And so we really need to revisit that social contract, that commitment that if you contribute, you work hard, you play by the rules that will be there for you. Because today, far too many are one crisis away. Richard, 9% of seniors lived at or below the poverty line before the pandemic started in 2019. The latest census found that number is 10.3% now, and that's the highest it's been in 20 years. We know the virus disproportionately impacts the elderly in terms of health, but what about finances? Yeah. So what really hurt the uh, older folks during the uh, pandemic was that many of them had to stop working. You know, we we don't think of older people as working that much. And yet um, fully a third of people 65 to 69 are employed. And that um, often supplements their Social Security benefits. What we saw during the pandemic was that many left their jobs because they were worried about um, the, the risks of being in the workplace, being in public. Uh, and they haven't gone back. So we're still down short about a, a million uh, seniors fewer seniors in the workforce today than three years ago. Richard, in 1975, a fifth of Americans over 50 lived at or below the poverty line. Why was it so high and why has it dropped? 
Um, so it used to be so high because Social Security benefits were a lot smaller back then. We've had a big expansion of Social Security, so more people today qualify for Social Security than back in 1975. Um, and so that's been one of the big improvements that we've seen in uh, the financial security of older adults. However, um, so, so, so a big drop from, let's say, 1960 to about 2000 in terms of poverty rates. Since then, it's been stagnating. We haven't seen continued improvement. Uh, and it's also important to realize that uh, these poverty measures do not always capture um, the types of financial insecurity that people face. So, so for example, with Lisa, with her high out-of-pocket medical costs that consumes a big part of her Social Security check, that isn't reflected in the official poverty rate because it doesn't count those high needs that she faces. Are there certain groups that are more vulnerable to falling into poverty in their later years than others? Women, or do we see a breakdown on racial lines? Yeah, so we see enormous breakdowns, enormous differences by education, by gender, um, and by race and ethnicity. Um, So black and Hispanic seniors are three times as likely to live in poverty uh, after age 65 than non-Hispanic whites. Women twice as likely as as men. And then if you look at uh, black women who are unmarried, 85 plus, fully 40% of them are living under the poverty level. Um, so it's that, that combination of factors. If you combine the, the struggles that people face because they're a woman, because they're, they're black, because they're unmarried, all those uh, amplify and you get just enormous deep poverty f- for those groups. Last week, the acting commissioner of the Social Security Administrator made a, administration rather, made a major announcement about Social Security benefits. You may have seen the recent good news about the 2023 Medicare premiums, and I want to let you know this year's substantial Social Security Cost of Living Adjustment, or COLA, will also bring more support to seniors and others who count on the benefits you've earned for everyday costs. That was Kalolo Kijikazi with the Social Security Administration. And to note, we reached out to the acting commissioner to join the program. She was unable today, but the invitation stands for a later date. Ramsey, we'll get to the changes to Medicare premiums in a bit. But first, what was the cost of living adjustment made for 2023 Social Security beneficiaries? So it's a much needed increase of 8.7%. And it's going to go a long way, especially coupled with the decrease in the Medicare Part B premiums. And that's fantastic. But frankly, it's a Band-Aid. It's a Band-Aid given that so many older adults are really navigating this do-it-yourself retirement, this DIY retirement of looking at their health care costs and their health care needs, struggling, many looking to go back to work because Social Security is not enough. So we see it as a much-needed increase, but a larger conversation needs to occur around the adequacy of income in retirement and the role Social Security needs to play today given current realities. Well, we got this message from Pam in Green Bay who writes, I'm a 74-year-old senior living on Social Security only. My annual income is less than $10,000 a year. Social Security is increasing by 8% next year, and I'm afraid that will put me over the limit to receive food stamps and winter heating assistance. Richard, is is Pam in any danger here? Um, So usually those thresholds um, that 
that you need to, to meet to qualify for extra benefits, usually they increase with the cost of living as well. So I think, um, I think she's probably okay. Um, but, but, but that is the, the risk that, um, you know, if, if we were to increase Social Security benefits and we don't change other, pro- other sort of safety net programs, the people could, for example, lose eligibility for, for Medicaid, which we heard from, um, from Sandy how important that was to her. Now, how are an individual's Social Security benefits calculated? Um, so your Social Security uh, is determined based on your top 35 years of earnings. So each year um, when you're working in covered employment in almost all jobs these days, except for some state and local jobs are covered by Social Security, um, you're paying taxes into – you're contributing to the system. Um, and then um, your earnings are, are added up over the, the top 35 years, and then uh, that is the basis on which your benefit is computed. It's a progressive benefit, meaning that those with low lifetime benefits get a higher replacement rate than those with higher earnings. Um, but still, the more you earn, the more benefits you get. So if you were working a lower wage job for most of your life, you're going to have less Social Security benefits, but Yes. Likely less savings as well. That's right. So it's really a double whammy for you. You're, um, if, if you have a, a lifetime of low-income work, um, you're going to get less Social Security benefits. You're not going to be able to save as much. You're probably not going to have um, a retirement account from your employer, a retirement plan from your employer. Um, so it, uh, it, it really, you know, inequality really amplifies over the life course. Um, and, and, and so uh, we see more inequality at older ages than at working ages. And I should also say just another important factor about determining Social Security benefits is also it depends on when you start collecting. So that you can start collecting Social Security as early as age 62, but you're going to get a cut in your monthly payments if you retire, if you start collecting before your full retirement. The full retirement age is now 67, and that's for people who turn 62 this year. We'll be back with more of our discussion on senior poverty in just a moment. And remember to connect with us on Twitter. Tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to our discussion with these messages from you. During COVID, I had to use my entire retirement fund to keep alive um, because I had no savings and I'd lost my job. I depend 100% on Social Security and Medicare. Having just turned 65, I am now paying another $190 that I wasn't having to pay before. Social Security and Medicare are extremely important to my everyday life. I would be homeless without them. And this country needs to do something to keep those programs viable. Thanks to Emily, Alice, and Carol, who all called in from Florida. I want to bring a new voice into the conversation. Cresha Reed is the CEO and president of the South Florida Institute on Aging. Her organization provides essential services to older adults and their families across South Florida. Cresha, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Now, improving equity among the senior citizen population is a core part of your organization's work. Black seniors are twice as likely to live in poverty as white seniors. Latino seniors are nearly triple that rate. What steps is your organization taking to improve equity among seniors? So the steps we've taken, obviously, is the types of programs that we offer to older adults in the community. So we offer companionship and respite services, which especially in South Florida, it's definitely needed um, for elderly and frail individuals that are living alone. And then for caregivers that are looking for some respite care. Then we have our technology services um, where we are teaching 
older adults technology. So it could be the basics, the intermediates um, class, also device specific, which we know is needed, especially in this time, especially after the pandemic, when everything transitioned to just all virtual services. Older adults are kind of left to, you know, figure things out. And we stepped in to make sure that they were able to still connect with people, still be able to get their needs met through these classes. And then um, we also have volunteers that serve in the VA clinics and the VA hospitals working to provide supportive services to those that are coming in, whether they need to understand their VA benefits, um, they need more social services in terms of connecting with um, the social worker on site, and then we have volunteers at community centers. So we basically use our volunteerism to kind of drive um, the support that's needed for older adults because we understand that they need help. So specifically, not just only our programs, but really connecting them to other services that's in the community. We try to be a one-stop shop as best as possible. So if you come in, you know, we do an assessment on you, uh, making sure that we can figure out what programs are available within our agency that can serve you. And if not, who can we connect you to? So not just simply giving you a referral, but also walking you through the eligibility process and making making sure that you have a direct contact and then following up with you. I think that's one of the things that's really needed for um, individuals, especially our older adults, and especially those that are from marginalized groups. Navigating the system is really difficult, and we try to you know, streamline that process for them. Well, and explain a little bit more about where, where equity fits in with the work you're doing. Equity fits in in the work that we're doing because we are trying to eliminate limitations that prevent people from actually getting the resources that they need. If you don't have the knowledge, if you don't have the education and you don't know where to look, we have to make sure that you can get those resources. So like I said, we have people that are on our staff that are looking at what limitations are you facing right now, whether it means that you don't know how to use technology to go online and fill out applications or um, you don't have the resource in terms of having the actual technology to do it. Um, you don't know where to look. We are the ones who are trying to make sure that we can get you that resource to fill out the application, to um, you know meet with somebody and get your needs met. Or if it's our actual program, um, especially for a lot of people that are low income and they don't have the funds to have a home health aid to come into their home to stay with their loved one. That's a re- free resource that we're providing mm-hmm. to them. We got this tweet from Michael who says there's not enough discussion about how student loans, including Parent PLUS loans, drive older adults into poverty during economic downturns. And Bob tweeted, I'm 71, going blind, still working a middle class job. For 2021, the IRS taxed 80 percent of my SSA benefit. That's not right. I have no other retirement or savings. Ramsey, what are some of the hidden costs that we don't necessarily think about when we think about this population? Well, thank you for raising student debt. Student debt is on the rise among older adults that are just trying to do the right thing, help their loved ones get a good start. And yet taking on that burden, that obligation in support of those individuals is hampering them as they age, even garnishing their social security check. So we're looking closely at those debt issues. We find for so many older adults, they are coming up short when it comes to their basic needs. And so they're balancing the books on that plastic safety net, that credit card. And that credit card and the compounding interest is really problematic. And so many may not think of debt and older adults, but it's a significant issue. Just as aging 
with a mortgage is becoming a significant issue. Long gone are the days when individuals age free and clear of a mortgage. Actually, for a variety of reasons, a number of older adults are finding themselves carrying that mortgage forward in old age, and it's particularly tricky as they uh, switch gears to a fixed income, Social Security in particular. Richard, how has the number of seniors continuing to work past retirement age changed over time? So that's been one of the... uh, most important changes to the labor market we've seen in the past 25 years. Um, the number of people employed, um, 62 to 69, um, so after they qualify for Social Security, has increased by about uh, 40% over the past um, uh, uh, 25 years. So people 40% more likely to work in that age group today than people were 25 years ago in that age range. Um, and you know, a, a lot of it is driven by um, so, some good things, that work is generally less physically demanding than it used to so people are better able to work on average. Um, uh, people are better educated at older, older ages now so, so, so that they can um, uh, better able to obtain jobs than, than they used to be. Um, but then there are some um, disquieting uh, reasons for this increase in, in employment at older ages, which is that more people just simply can't afford to retire as early as they used to be able to. And that's because of we're seeing declines in pension coverage, um, that most people now have 401k type plans, but they, they don't contribute, they're unable to contribute to it as much as they could, not accumulating as much uh, in in those plans as they would have in a traditional pension plan. And then rising health care costs is also a big issue. I also want to tease something else out from that message, because you need to be at a certain income threshold to get certain benefits, like Medicaid benefits, and that varies from state to state. Right. So how might that threshold conflict with whatever savings someone might might actually have? Uh that that is is an important issue, and, and and so you really hit on two really important issues. One is that a lot of these programs vary dramatically from state to state. So so you mentioned Medicaid. Um, Medicaid benefits much more generous in some states than in others. Um, also. One of the the callers or, or the emailers mentioned SSI, Supplemental Security Income. Um, that's a federal program, but many states also supplement those benefits. So certain states like California give you a much higher benefit, can push you above the poverty level than the uh, basic federal uh, benefit, which stays below the the, the, the poverty level. In, in 2023, 20, uh, the basic federal benefit will only be about $900. So again, that doesn't put you above the federal level. Um, uh, above the poverty level. But um, as you work more and as you save more, then you can lose eligibility for f- for these uh, supplemental Medicaid benefits that, that Sandy at the top of the show mentioned, um, for housing assistance, for food stamps, for uh, for supplemental nutrition assistance programs, um, for all kinds of benefits. So, so it is, uh, you know, I mean, it's... Th- th- the, the quandary here is, you know, these programs are for low-income people. They are for people who, who really need help. Um, but then as you try to uh, uh, pull yourself up, then you find that you, you lose these benefits. And sometimes it really creates a strong disincentive mm-hmm. to try to better your situation. Ramsey, how essential is digital literacy for this population? Well, we saw with the pandemic, it's as basic as electricity and water. Your connectivity, your hardware, your software, your digital literacy is essential to your ability to stay connected with friends and family, even work. And so we've really been working to engage the vast network of community-based organizations in their efforts to help older adults build their digital literacy and also are providing resources directly through ncoa.org to help individuals. It's so critical. But we also found during the pandemic, everyone was a quick study. 
everyone got online for Facebook Live or Zoom and really defied some of the stereotypes around aging and technology because it was essential. And we have a program we administer around workforce issues with older adults that want and need to continue to work. It's called the Senior Community Service Employment Program. It's supported by the Department of Labor. And we often find older adults coming looking for jobs at 79, 80, and beyond just need a quick skill refresh on some of that digital literacy and the confidence. And then they are among the best employees once hired uh, because they are so committed to the work and um, such a fantastic presence. So a little skill building can go a long way. Carisha, what more would you like to see done on the state or, or federal level when it comes to alleviating poverty for older Americans? I'm just more interested in our older adults getting more education on what's available to them, um, especially resources that they need, not only just for Social Security, not only just for Medicaid, but also things that they need for housing, things that they need for transportation. I feel like there is so much information that's missed from older adults, even though we try to share it with them, but it's not all connecting for them. It's hard to navigate some of this information. I feel like there should be more advocacy on connecting everyone together, collaborating together to make processes more streamlined. So even for getting assistance for food, you know, we've heard some of the voice messages that have left with people barely getting enough to go by. We need some changes on that because People need more access to healthy food, need more access to being able to have food to sustain them. And going on $73 a month or $15 a month is not enough, even in terms of additional stuff that Medicaid and Medicare can um, afford. Like some people don't know in terms of there's over the counter prescriptions that you can get and over the counter items such as hygiene items and other things that you can get mm -hmm. for yourself if you have Medicaid and some of the health other healthcare programs that are available to you. Some people just don't know that. Yeah. We need to find better ways to streamline that process. Richard, just very briefly in, in a sentence or two, what are your final thoughts around how we can address this issue? Um, so in terms of uh, addressing poverty, I think the most important thing is to increase the Supplemental Security Program, SSI, that people have mentioned a little bit. It's for very low-income seniors. The program is really the forgotten safety net. Um, and, and I think uh, increasing that and also adding a minimum benefit to Social Security could both have uh, huge impacts on, on poverty at older ages. That's Richard Johnson. He's the director of the Retirement Policy Program at the Urban Institute. Also with us today, Kreisha Reed. She's the president of the nonprofit, the South Florida Institute on Aging, and Ramsey Alwyn, president and CEO of the National Council on Aging. Richard, Kreisha, Ramsey, thanks for your time. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.